In the 19th century, there was a Christmas carol that became very popular. It was entitled, Away in a Manger. It was published by an American guy, and it quickly swept the country and beyond into the English-speaking world to become a very popular Advent seasonal song. It, it, it also, you know, took on uh, other sort of legends with it. Some, you know, some actually said Martin Luther wrote it, which uh, isn't the historical case, but it's a very popular song in, in the 1900s in America and then into the English-speaking world. Very popular, Away in a Manger, in particular in England, for example. The title of my Christmas Eve message tonight comes from a line in this song, no crying he makes is a line in this song. And I, I want to question this line before you. We can question songs that are written by mortals. We never question the Word of God, and so we'll compare it to the Word of God and let the Word of God and let things that we know about history and theology and what have you sort of speak on this issue. So the title of tonight's message is No Crying He Makes, and I, I put a question mark after it because I, I want to ask, Really? No, no crying he makes? I see some babies in the room, and I, you know, I'm willing to put some Christmas money on it that they won't make it through the sermon without crying. Maybe some of the adults, too. So in, in my Sunday sermon this past Lord's Day, I deconstructed some of the lines and the imagery of this, holi this holiday hit known as Away in a Manger. It says some peculiar things about Jesus' present ministry to us, and it also says some, uh, some peculiar things with regard to Jesus' past ministry concerning very specifically the scene of the nativity. This song, Away in a Manger, is not alone. There have been many songs that have been, been produced in the modern world around the holiday, and they get a lot of things wrong about the actual holiday itself. And this, this can be seen by comparing and contrasting our contemporary songs and, and art and traditions, by comparing and contrasting them with ancient history, with archaeology, with sociocultural data, with the scripture, to show how our modern traditions and imaginations can get things wrong. In fact, for the Advent season, I have been offering a series of sermons engaging kind of modern claims around Christ and Christmas and engaging those claims with history and with primary source documents to see what is right and what is wrong, what is real and what is fake. Uh, fake. I'm playing off the rhetoric of our divided culture. I, I mean, there's not a day that doesn't pass where I don't see uh, the right and the left hurling fake news at each other, and so I decided to kind of call this series to riff on this neologism, fake news, our fake news Christmas series, our fake <laughs> slash fact news Christmas series. In the first two messages of the series, we focused on outsider sort of gringe scrooge attacks that are made on Christians with regard to their faith in the month of December. Inevitably, it happens. It'll be the cover of a magazine or, you know, online, social media. They're going to say stuff about Christ and Christmas. That just isn't the case. And so what we did is we studied some of those claims and we compared it with the facts and we saw, oh, it's, it's a bunch of fake news. Uh, we also, at the same time, studied the biblical charge to thoughtfully engage fake news uh, around our faith and do so with facts and do so in a spirit of gentleness and humility, unlike the heated cancel culture of our day that responds to things that it disagrees with, with misrepresentations, with fear, with anger, with cutting off, and, and just, you know, just venomous rhetoric all around. And so in, in this series, I've been trying to help us as a congregation think about how do we respond to those false claims? In the, in the second half of the second message and in the third part of this series, which I gave this past Sunday, we look not only at the sort of fake news that's out there in the world where people say Christ is this or Christmas is this, but we also looked at some of our insider stuff. That's an important thing. Jesus taught his followers to, you know, look at, look at the log in your own eye before you look at the speck in others. And so a part of this sermon series on fake news and Christmas has been exploring our own stuff. Our Christian art, for example. Our Christian hymns, I'm picking on away in a manger. Oh, I'm so mean. Our storytelling around Christmas. And, and it's, it's not to be critical. It's actually to help us to think, actually in a good critical sense, with regard to what, the, what does the scriptures paint for us? What does the word of God say about these things? The Christmas story in our modern contemporary setting gets removed from its context and romanticized uh, a bit into a scene of a holy couple camping out in the woods with their latest REI equipment. They're way in the manger, they're away, they're in isolation, it's quiet, it's cozy. They have it all to themselves, you know. 
uh, Joseph's in the corner just reading his iPad, and Mary's just chilling out, just popping a baby out, and it's just, it's cool, everything's, you know, they're by themselves, there's a few cute animals, here let me put some artwork, you're familiar with this, there's maybe a few cute animals there, and later along the line, you know, some shepherds and exactly three wise men, which the Bible doesn't say was exactly, exactly three, the shepherds and the wise men show up to do a little baby shower for Jesus, you know, we got them some frankincense baby wipes and all this stuff. And they, they show up. And then, you know, in the heavens, some Tinkerbell tooth fairy, pretty white ladies with wings floating on top of this scene show up. And we looked in this series how when you look at angels inside of Scripture, they don't look like that at all, let alone in our art, the Holy Family, the way the Holy Family looks. You've got the rosy white Gerber baby looking Jesus in there. And then you've got, you know, the European parents who... They're on the, you know, the, the Lampoon's Christmas vacation there or whatever. They're like 40 years old, and you're going, wait, wait. I'm reading the Bible, though, and I see a different picture. The Mary that we meet inside of Scripture is a teenager. She's Jewish. She's likely brown-skinned. Joseph as well. He's a, a tan teenager. He's got pimples. His voice is cracking. You know what I'm talking about. You've, ta you've seen my, my 15 and 14-year-old. You know, they're just, they're just teenagers trying to figure out life. It's, it's awkward. It's raw. It's real. It's, it's not this. And while it is fine for artists to be creative and contextualize art for us today, we need to also remember what's contextual kind of modern art for a modern audience is going to have certain artistic license with it. And often it's going to look like the culture that created it. But what is actual? What is the actual historical rendering in its original context is something that we, we need to know. What originally happened? What was originally seen? What was originally described in the primary documents that we now refer to as the New Testament? So tonight, I want, I want to take you to, to see this. I, I want to take you to imagine the original nativity as it was, and I want to reflect on the original nativity as it was on some of the theology that swirls around this original scene. So I'm not picking on modern art. I'm not some art snob up here who, asking people to go home and throw away your nativity sets and get rid of your angel ladies. You know, I'm just saying those aren't the ones inside of the Bible, so do whatever you want with them. Uh, you can hang them wherever you like. I'm not trying to be the Scrooge with your decorations or your artwork. I'm, I'm just simply trying to show so that you understand the way that it appeared in its original context. Speaking of modern art, I'm a fan of modern art. I think it can actually be quite, quite helpful. In particular, in 2014, there was a, a nativity scene that was drawn by an artist, Everett Patterson, and he entitled it Jose y Maria. He very creatively you know, depicted what it would look like for two teenagers who are, who, are, who are out and, you know, with child. The artist very creatively snuck in a bunch of biblical references in it. For example, you see the verse from the prophet Ezekiel and graffiti. I'm an urban kid, so, you know, it's like, yeah, biblical graffiti. Uh, don't, my dad's here tonight. I never tagged Bible verses. Uh, don't, don't worry. But on the, on, then you have the, uh, the save more sort of sign behind Mary's head, and it kind of looks like the Ave Maria. You've got two ads for glad and tide on the newspaper there at the bottom. You know, get it, glad tidings. There's a bunch of images in this. Anyway, I like modern art that kind of, you know, oh, okay, that's cool. I can kind of think of what it might look like in my modern context. But still, nonetheless, modern art inevitably, inevitably, unless it's back with scholars is really thought through, it's going to have the baggage of our culture that we project on it. So, for example, in this one, though I like it, there's this vacancy sign in the back on Dave's City Motel. As we discussed in my message last week, Bethlehem was not a motel town. Bethlehem was backwoods. We have no archaeological evidence of there being motels there. It wasn't a tourist site. It wasn't a place of travel. There's, and, and in fact, culturally, there's no way that you would come to town and not stay with family. In fact, after I gave the message, we, I have a family that is in town who, who lives in the Middle East. In fact, who doesn't live far from Bethlehem? And we were talking after the service of, you know, kind of the deconstruction of what it originally would have looked like and how Joseph wouldn't even think to look inside of a motel because the city of David is his family city. Of course, he would stay with family. And this family, who's here tonight, I don't want to put them on blast and point out, but lived not far from Bethlehem and said, oh yeah, in our culture, you, you would never do that. You, you would never, it would be a shame to your family to do something like that. 
And they shared with me that even on their trip to the States to see the kids and grandkids and family members who are stateside, you know, they thought, oh, we don't want to be, you know, we don't want to be a burden, so we'll just stay in a hotel as we're visiting cousin so-and-so. And cousin so-and-so was like, oh, heck no, you can't do that. You have to stay in our home. Culturally, that's what you do. Not to mention that archaeologically, it's not a motel town. Bethlehem is Jesus' family hometown. That's his, his stepdaddy Joe is from there. And their culture, Middle Eastern culture, is, is very hospitable that way. You would, you would never do that. And as well, it's not just culture, it's their faith. In, in Jewish tradition, you're commanded by God to show hospitality to family and even to strangers. In, 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 in the teachings of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, he tells his disciples this too. You can't say that you love God if you don't love your neighbor, his disciples would teach us. You're supposed to be welcoming. You're supposed to have them in. A lot of moderns have turned the Christmas story into an Expedia.com debacle where Joe is trying to find a hotel to no avail. Uh, he, he, you know, he's a procrastinator, you know, new dad, Homer Simpson or whatever. And, and he was too busy, uh, you know, posting on Instagram and, you know, he lost track of time. And now he's posting on the buy nothing pages so he can just find some free stuff for his, his baby because he didn't plan. And he's posting, hey, anybody know of any good, good hotels? And he's on Bethlehem Yelp trying to find, you know, a cool place to stay. But then he goes, wait a second. I got all this cool REI camping gear. I'm going to make it look like it was a date night. We're getting alone time. Time. Don't you want some alone time? And we'll just, we'll just camp out. We'll just be out there all alone by ourselves. This stems from a misreading of Luke's gospel where you have the line, there is no room in the inn. I'll show it to you as it originally looked, not, not because there's those here who read the ancient Koine Greek, but just so you're reminded. I think it's important when you see ancient words, you're reminded we're stepping into an ancient world. Uk ein autois tapas into katalumati. The word, uh, these words here, very literally translated, as I would render it, would be no was for them room in the guest room. The word katalumati is from the word kataluma. It is a word for a guest room in a common home of the day. It is not a room for a, for a motel. And, and the context shows us, shows us that. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, where there is an incident of someone who stays in a motel, the caper with the Good Samaritan, he finds the guy all busted up and puts him in a motel. It's a different word that is used. The, the, Jesus laying in, in a manger, uh, what about that? Well, the, the manger was actually a part of the common homes at the day. The, the kataluma was just a guest room in your house. That's what they called it. Mangers were also kept inside of the house because the homes at the time kept animals inside. Now, I'm, I'm a keep the dog outside of the house kind of a guy. You know, the dog's here for protection. Get out the house. You know, that, I'm more of that kind of guy. Uh, my veterinarian's here. She's probably cringing. But, you know, the in, you got the inside animal people or whatever. This culture was inside animal people through and through. Chickens, goats, all kind of stuff in your house. That's how you did it. You did it that way because it kept your animals safe from, from thieves and from predators. You did it that way also because they served as insulation. They served as a heater for the home. The homes, let me give you a picture of what first century homes look like, and we know this from archaeology. They would keep the animals on the first floor. Here's the area where the manger would be and the animals would be, and we know that hot air rises, and so it would heat the quarter where the family would live, the Cataluma area where you would have an area for the guests. You have a general court uh, a yard here, a kitchen here, and some storage here. We've, we, we have the remains of, of so many of these. This is what it looks like. That's what a Cataluma was. Notice the comparison here on, on the side. Here on the side, if, if you can't see it, this is a, a comparison to a, a trailer house, a mobile home. Uh, and, you know, and there's cool way, everyone's tiny house, I got a tiny house, you know, it's cool, it's like a movement. But I'm talking trailer trash, like little rinky-dink thing. And so these homes were half the size of that. And they have the little loft on top for the separate spaces, as I, as I was telling you about. But families at the time, they didn't see that as, as an issue. They didn't see this as every kid's got to have his own room. They just crammed everyone in, and that's what it looked like. While the virgin conception... The, the eternal son of the triune God who's father, son, and spirit. The father sending his son to become a baby. That is a miracle. That is not normal. A, a miracle by definition means that it's not normal. But everything else in this house is very normal. Christmas 
was a rather normal story. Here's a first century recreation that is uh, held at Harvard University. If you're ever in the neck of the woods there, it, you, you can go, you can see this thing, and you can kind of absorb it in. And I'm giving you these pictures because I want to help you to think about what you've read in the Bible and, and maybe deconstruct some of the ways that you visualize it in your mind. This is important because it's a key aspect of what we celebrate in Christmas, that God the Son became a normal man. He didn't become an abstract man. He was a concrete man. He, he, he entered into human history as a normal dude. The story is a very normal story. Of course, the virgin conception is not. That's the miracle part. But going, going to your family town, staying with your family, that's all very normal. Being crammed in with everyone, a full house. And there's not even a cataluma. There's not even a guest room. You know, what are we going to do? Well, you get the air mattress out and you, you post them up over here. They can stay here. And the baby comes. Where do we put the baby? Well, you know, we can, we can easily repurpose a, a manger for that. Now, forgive me for doing some of this review if you were here on Sunday and you're like, oh, Oh my gosh, I heard all this on Sunday. Get to it already. Why are you don't like babies crying? This is all connected. And so it's worth further reflection. It's worth repetition so that, that you're reminded of this. The king of heaven came to earth. And he came to earth in a little podunk, eight-mile, trailer trash kind of a context. We are talking about the birth of the king of kings, the lord of lords. And the very first breaths that he had in his little biological body that he took on were in a crammed peasant shack. There was no red carpet. There was no fancy palace. It wasn't royal. It was regular. And the angels, the angels, I picked on the way they're depicted in our art, but when you look at the angels in the Bible... They're intimidating, they're glorious, they're powerful, they're bright, they're, they're heavenly. When they appear, usually the first words out of their mouth is, don't be afraid. They're, they're powerful, they're, they're, they're massive, they're, they're glowing, they're, they're intense. The, the angels are bright and heavenly, but the eternal sun has become dull and earthly. Many years later, Christ would give his disciples, a small, a small crew of his disciples, a glimpse of his glory and what we refer to as, as the event of the transfiguration. He would give them a glimpse of his glory. He'd kind of pull back the veil a little bit and they get to see a little bit of this. Shortly thereafter, one of his disciples, John, he received this revelation from Jesus on the island of Patmos, what we refer to as the Apocalypse of John or the book of Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible. And he receives this vision of what Jesus looked like in the heavens of Jesus' pre-incarnate glory, before he came a man, what he looked like. And, and what you see are these angels bowing down before him in intimidation. These angels who, who are crippled in his presence. You, 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 see, you see him in all of his glory. And all of that glory, he, the eternal son, in becoming a baby of a, of a poor teenager in a trailer, trash, small, crammed-in little home, you say, where's the glory? Is the glory gone? Well, no, 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 the glory's not gone. The glory is veiled in his flesh, the flesh of this newborn, who would be given the name Yeshua, which we translate into English through, through English tradition as Jesus. He, the eternal Son, once reigned in the heavens. He was revered by angels, angels who praised him all day as God. Now he would be given an earthly name, Yeshua Jesus. He, the one adored in the heavens by the angels, now came to earth to be ignored by men, carried by a human in the womb of a teenager, and those teenagers had very little understanding in their very brief revelation that was given to them by the angels concerning exactly who was in her womb. She knew the child wasn't the product of a sexual encounter. She knew that much. She knew she was a virgin, and Luke in chapter 1 verse 27 refers to her as a parthenos, which is the Greek word that means virgin. She, she knew that much. She knew, hey, I didn't do this. How, what's, you know, what's going on here? And she received revelation that gave her just a little bit of what was going on here. Now, since this is a sermon series that's about Christmas fake news, let me address something and then I'll get back and we'll talk about why the crying thing annoys me. But uh, uh, virgin birth. Uh, you know, there's a lot of fake news around the virgin birth. A lot of people around Christmas, they want to go, oh, virgin birth. Oh, you know, uh, there's pagan religions that have like goddesses having babies and they didn't do it sexually. And, you know, that's just a pagan idea that Chris, Chris, Christians hijacked. They remixed it or whatever. Or, or, you know, or they'll go kind of philosophical naturalism and say virgins can't have babies. 
You, you, you Christians and your Christmas, virgins can't have babies. That's just fake news. A friend of mine, you know, uh, approached me with this. He's like, I, I just can't believe that you believe in a virgin conception. I mean, you're a smart guy. You got, you know, advanced degrees and stuff like that. It's just not science, Matt Jones. Why would you believe that? You know, why would you believe something like that? Virgins do not conceive, my friend said to me. And I, I actually responded by saying, well, that's not scientifically true, actually. Uh, there, there is such a thing in biology known as asexual reproduction. A form of asexual reproduction is actually called, you can get your phones out and go on Wikipedia, it's a, a common knowledge thing, parthenogenesis. The word that I shared with you in Luke chapter 1, verse 27, parthenos, that's where parthenogenesis comes from. Parthenos means virgin, genos means uh, 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 birth, the birth of a virgin, an asexual birth. Mary is explicitly identified as a virgin, as I referenced in Luke 1.27. Virgin conception, uh, virgin birth, the parthenos, this is something that happens in biology. It naturally occurs in many plants. It occurs in invertebrates, for example, water fleas, aphids, stick insects, some ants, bees, and wasps. And it also occurs in some vertebrates. There are some reptiles, amphibians, fish, a small number of very rare birds that do this. In any case, to claim that it's not scientific or that doesn't happen in biology is just fake news. Well, my friend rejoined to my, to my rejoinder, well, that's just never been seen in humans. And if we're talking about science, the scientific method is based on what is testable, observable, and repeatable. And so, so it's still absurd because we can't test, observe, and that's not repeatable with regard to the human species. To which I, I said, the fact that you have never seen something does not mean that it doesn't happen. I've never seen a black hole, uh, first person. I've never seen a cancer cell. I've never seen a whale give birth. That would be cool to be in the water and watch whale babies popping out. I've never seen, uh, we could be here all night talking about stuff that I've never seen, but I have good reason to believe in. Furthermore, uh, we all believe in things that are not repeatable. Uh, to, uh, you know, to my friend who's giving me the fake news kind of thing, I, I asked my friend, I mean, you believe in your own birth, don't you? You believe you were born. That's not an event that is testable, repeatable, or observable. Further, any event in history, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, you can't test and repeat and observe that sort of thing. That is not the only way we epistemologically know things. Friends, this world is filled with miracles. We choose to deny them, explain them away based on our presuppositions and based on the fake news that we get fed and the echo chambers that we get caught in. Yet no amount of explaining this can explain it away. Why? Because it's real. And the real historical texts corroborate this reality. More than a phenomenon of biology, to be sure. Let me be very clear. The parthenogenesis that we have in Christmas in the historical figure Mary isn't a random fluke of nature. Oh no, it was designed and decreed by, by a miracle of Almighty God who is sovereign over his creation. Skeptics who question this reality often aren't doing it based on the event itself, but they're doing it on a presupposition that there is no God. Because if there is no God, then you can't have miracles. And so then I'll go there with regard to the fake news. Well, there's no God when they pull that card. Well, scientifically, uh, we have reason to believe there is a God. We know that everything that has a beginning has a cause. Further, we know that the universe had a beginning. What is popularly known as the Big Bang or the cosmological singularity shows us that the universe came into existence. It had a beginning. So then scientifically, if everything that has a beginning has a cause, and scientifically the universe had a beginning, then logically and scientifically it follows the universe had a cause. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe had a beginning, so the universe has a cause. Logically, the case cannot be... The, the cause, excuse me, logically the cause of this universe cannot be what the universe is since it existed prior to the universe. So whatever caused the universe can't be what the universe itself is. So we can deduce based on the science. The universe is, is follow me, impersonal matter running out of usable energy that has come into existence. So it stands to reason that the cause of the universe must be personal, not impersonable. It, it, it must be uh, immaterial, not matter. It must be all-powerful and not running out of energy. It must be eternal because it never began to exist. It always was. Now, contrary to the fake news, it says belief in God is a leap of faith and there's no reasonable scientific reason or logic to believe in these things. That's just contrary to the fact. Contrary to, to, to those who would say, oh, all of this is just a big leap of faith and you got to check your brains at the door when you come to church. No, you need to put your thinking caps on. It is logically to believe that an eternal, all-powerful God who made the world out of nothing, as the Latins said, creatio ex nihilo, it is logical to believe that a God who can make a world out of nothing can asexually make a baby in the womb of, of a virgin. 
creatio ex virgine. Creatio ex virgine is nothing for a God who is creatio ex nihilo. Mary knew this. Coming back on track, what did Mary know? Mary knows, hey, I didn't do this. Joseph knows, hey, I didn't, I, I, I didn't do this. I wasn't a part of this. And then they receive revelation that give them a little bit more of what's going on. And there's no reason to doubt the testimony of their revelation. They are eyewitnesses. It happened to them. When you're trying to solve a crime, you go to the victims, you go to the suspects, you start asking questions, you examine the evidence. And so we go back to Mary. We, we get back to the conception of the Christ child. We see this humble entry into human history, into this crowded family home that doesn't even have a kataluma to spare. The king of glory is veiled in the flesh. His own earthly parents, they don't know everything that's going on at the moment. They, they know that they're headed to Bethlehem. They, they have the baby in Bethlehem. They have some revelation of what is going on. In the revelation that they were given, uh, what, what the angels told them, what aspects they told them, they knew this had to do something with the covenants of God and prophecies of God. The Christ child was prophesied to come from the line of David, and they were of the line of David, and, and, and it was prophesied that he would be born in Bethlehem, and now they're in Bethlehem, and the baby's born. And so they're piecing together, Mary and Joe are. They've been told that the baby is Emmanuel, which is a word that means God with us. And so they know this baby is, is not, like a, not like a mere little baby. This baby's like somehow God with us. The angels gave Mary and Joseph a very veiled look at what was happening. Mind you, these are angels who know the triune God of heaven. These are angels that God created at the foundations of the world. They watch God, creatio ex nihilo. They watch God do all this stuff. They, they've been watching God. They, they know these things. You've got to imagine the restraint of these angels when they were sent to Mary and Joseph. And God says, this is what you're going to tell them. I don't, know about, I don't know about you guys, but I don't like leaving out details when I'm talking about Jesus. I get so ratcheted up talking about Jesus, and you guys are so patient with me in my long-winded sermons, but I just want to tell you everything about Jesus. And these angels know more than I know, and they're sent, and they just give them a little piece of what's happening. It's something to do with the Davidic Messiah, the king born in Bethlehem. But we can imagine that they imagined, as we see inside of the gospel accounts, that it was going to be more apocalyptic. It was going to be more majestic. You would think if we have the king, right? Like, wouldn't the king come into a rich royal family and have all the fanfare that that, that king deserved? Wouldn't you think that he would be born to the best midwives and have the best medical attention that money could buy? And that he would be placed in a really expensive temper mattress with little baby buttons for his back and whatever mood he was in that just rocked itself and and was all blinged out and gold and you know have a like sweet rock star onesie like who's the man I'm the God man you know I'm the fulfillment of prophecy onesie wouldn't you think it would be like this grand thing like the king has come yeah no that's not how the story goes that's not how the Lord works he works through the week and the lowly, the poor, and the marginalized, and the outcasts for the unfolding of his plan of redemption so that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and humans will know this wasn't done by men. If he entered the home of a strong man and a rich man, and a, you know, right, you'd say, well, you know, look at his parents. Or you go, no, 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 look, look at his family. Look, look at his family. Look at his first bed. It's not a Tempur-Pedic. Mangers at the time were made out of stone. His first bed was a stone bed. Archaeologically, we know this to be the case. So, you know, yeah, now then we got the wood one over here. I know, you know, I'm, again, you can, we decorate according to our style. I mean, this is a, a way a modern one would look, but an ancient one would be made of stone. The unearthed stone mangers that you have in front of you are commonly found in the archaeology and the land. Now, engage your imagination. Recreate the scene. Because the details matter, because it's history. The primary sources give us this picture. So it was intended for us to see as well it matters because the lowly entry of the king of heaven to the earth actually foreshadows his life and his death. He comes into a family to make us family. He gives us life. He gives us life. He reconciles us to the father and makes us sons and daughters of his own father because of the work that he has done in a family. He gives his life after he dies. Notice the imagery that we have historically when he dies. It mirrors his birth. After he goes to the cross, the, the, the grown body of the Christ child is what? Wrapped in cloths and, and placed in a stone crypt. The first bed that he had was a stone crib. His last bed was a stone crypt. He was born wrapped in cloths and placed in a stone crib. 
Luke chapter 2, verse 7, she gave birth to the firstborn son, she wrapped him in cloths, and she lied him in a manger. In the tomb of Christ, the grown body of the Christ child laid, absent, absent as he laid in the tomb, absent the indwelling person of the eternal son who momentarily left his earthly body, as was promised to the thief who died next to him on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. There was his body, but not his human soul. Further, he promised his listeners that he would be buried and he would rise on the third day. So there is the body of the grown Christ child who is wrapped in cloths and laid in a stone. In reverse order, here's the stone manger, his body wrapped in cloths, and the eternal son is in the body. And that body and that human nature is growing. This is crazy because God doesn't grow. God doesn't change. He's immutable. But that human nature that he took on, it's growing, it's developing, it's emotions, it's physical limbs, it's, it's organs, all of it is developing. This is wild. Understanding Christian faith, the historical Jesus is not just a mere man of history. To, to be sure, he is a man, but not merely a man. You see, he's divine. We believe in this one God who eternally exists in three persons, and we have reasons to believe this is, that it's not conjecture or pie in the sky. And that the father sends the son so that the son is a baby, but the baby is God. And the baby's also a man. He's one person with two natures. He's God and man. As God, he holds the universe in his hands. As a man, he's held in the hands of a feeble teenage mother. As God, he knows all things. As man, he has to grow in knowledge. He has to learn to read and to write. He has to be potty trained. As, 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 as God, he's eternal. He's without beginning and without end. As man, he has a birthday, and we're here to celebrate it by thinking and reflecting on him. As God, he's indestructible, but as a man, his body is destructible. And follow me, he was born to destruct. That is to say, he was born to die. And more, to defeat death by his execution and his resurrection. We celebrate his death and resurrection, respectively, at Good Friday and Easter. This is our central and supreme holiday, and here's, here's the thing. There would be no Easter if there wasn't Christmas. There would be no Easter if there wasn't Christmas. In Christmas, the, the Son is incarnated. You hear that word, incarnate, carne asada, carne, flesh, right? In, in, incarnate, incarnation. The eternal Son has taken on flesh. The very body of flesh formed in the womb of Mary, that little fleshly body, those little baby hands, They'd be nailed to a cross. That fleshly body that she holds is going to be pinned to a cross in approximately three decades from that moment. And mind you, he's not God in a skin suit. He's a full human. Flesh, body, soul, mind, emotions, heart, will. All that is essential to being a human. Jesus was, of course, without sin. And this is what the scriptures tell us. Let me put Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 in front of you. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but the one who has been tempted, periosmos, it means trialed or tested, in all things, yet without sin. Jesus was fully human, yet he was without sin. He's all that is essential to being human. Jesus was, albeit without sin. And the important thing to keep in mind here is that sin is not essential to humanity. It's not an essential property of humanity. God created humans to be holy and happy. Sin invaded into God's good creation through humans, and it spread to all of us, bringing with it rebellion and death. That rebellion and death is what the Christ child came to overthrow, as well to rescue a people for himself as he overthrows the kingdom of darkness by taking rebels who are behind enemy lines and making them his own children. To make us his children, the uncreated eternal son became a created child and belonged to a family to bring us into God's family. The son has become a part of the human family. The eternal son was born so that we could be born again into God's family. He took that second nature, being God and man in one person, so he is respectively referred to as the priest. A priest is one who mediates between two parties. He stands between God and man. Behold, he is God and man, the perfect mediator for us. Christmas is not just about the birth of Christ. It's also about the life of that little baby, that little child. In terms of his childhood, the gospel accounts give us very little details. Matthew and Mark just give us the virgin conception and the birth accounts. Luke gives us a little glimpse into Jesus when he's like age 12 and he's in Jerusalem and he's hanging out with some religious leaders in the holy city. Now, besides the, the real short snippets that we have, the gospels don't give us much from Christmas to the beginning of his ministry. What happened when Jesus was a baby, a toddler, an adolescent, a teenager? 
There's all sorts of folklore and fake news that get developed in history, and there's not time to get into it. But, but what happened in terms of what the Bible tells us? Why doesn't the Bible give us more detail? Wasn't it important? Of course it was important. Everything about his life is important for us as his people. Every breath that he ever breathed, and that little tiny body in vitro after he was born, every breath that that little baby, toddler, teenager, grown man breathed is important to us. More deeply, every breath that he breathed was for his father and for the fame of his father. So then why are the breaths of the baby, toddler, and, and childhood years of Jesus left out of the Christmas accounts and the New Testament account? Why, why is it left out? Now, it's worth reflection. In the final song of the Broadway play Hamilton, and you guys get to see it when it came to L.A., super fresh, glad I got to take my kids, Hamilton. There's a refrain, who tells your story? It takes place after the death of Alexander Hamilton. The already deceased George Washington comes forward and he repeats a line from an earlier song, history has its eyes on you. Let, let, he says, and I quote, let me tell you what I'd wish I had known when I was young, end quote. And then it moves into this song that is entitled, Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story? It closes with this line, Will they tell your story? Time. Who lives, who dies, who tells your story? Time. Will they tell your story? Time. Who lives, who dies, who tells your story? The disciples of Jesus, through the cooperation of the eyewitnesses, Mary, shepherds, etc., etc., tell the story of Christ's birth. They gave us the major moments in his life. So why say so little about baby Jesus in his toddler years and in his childhood, his you know, adolescent teenage years? Why leave all of that out? I submit to you, the same thing that I'm laboring to argue with regard to his birth, it was normal. It was normal. The king of glory came and lived a normal, low life. It was nothing to write home about. The right home about stuff were his wondrous works. You know, he's walking on water. He's turning water into wine. He's doing all these things. He's healing people. He's raising the dead. That's the stuff to write about. Why? Because it authenticated his identity as God because God alone can do those things. Along with his, his wondrous works are his wonderful words and his, his teaching and his death and his resurrection. And so the accounts that we have all focus on this. John, I love the way that he closes his account. Look at this. He says, this is the disciple testifying to these things, and I wrote these things. My testimony is true, so, so help me God. John 21, 25, and there are many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. You see, Jesus lived a full life, and he lived a life perfectly. As I said, every breath of his life was unto the Father and the Father's fame, submitting his human will to the one divine will of God. More than a full life, it was a flawless life. This is a part of the mission that we think about in Christmas. The mission that began long ago with God's promises to fallen humanity in Genesis chapter 3 and to, to the people of Israel. As, as Madison led us tonight, we sing, we'll ransom captive Israel. To the people of Israel, Christmas was the climax in the story of God's people. In Christmas, the eternal son steps into the story of redemption personally. In other words, God didn't send a third party to handle human rebellion. He actually came himself and took on the form of a human to represent humanity before himself, God. To reveal the father to us, to replace our fallen father, Adam, as a substitutionary Adam or man for humanity. The son became a man for us. He came for his people and he lived a life for us and he gave his life for us. The Bible, in laboring to try and explain this reality, uses economic language to explain him giving his life for us. And in using economic language, the Bible describes our rebellion and our sin as debt. You guys all know what debt is. Probably racked some of it up around the holidays. You're already maybe fighting with each other. I think we went too far. We shouldn't have bought the whatever, you know. And you're racking up that Christmas debt, and you're like, oh, no, and compound interest. Well, the Bible uses this metaphor to describe to us the reality of our sin. We have racked up a massive debt that we cannot pay off. We, humanity, we owe a debt to our Creator that we cannot pay. And so He, Jesus... The Son in the flesh paid a debt for us that he himself did not owe, and he did it for us. The payment was made in his death. The payment was received in his resurrection. He makes the payment, and then it shows up in the account. You know when you, uh, you guys remember checks, and you'd write them, and it shows up in your account, and you're like, whoa, you know, or Venmo nowadays, you know, bing, 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 and then it shows up, okay? The payment was received in the resurrection. Now, the finances for that payment were earned and secured 
from the moment the Christ child came to the moment of his death, from the cradle to the crucifixion, from Christmas to the cross, the payment, the payment, he's, he's working this so that he can give this for his people. Look at what the scriptures say. I'll put another text in front of you. Hebrews chapter 5, although he was the son, he learned obedience from the things in which he suffered. Having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal life. Notice what the text says about his life. A moment ago, I said that Jesus had a full life, and I said that Jesus' life wasn't only full, but it was flawless. But notice what it's full with. Notice what it's filled with. Obedience. Obedience. You see, he lived a life that we did not live. We've disobeyed God. We've broken God's law. And when you break the law, you incur the penalty of the law. This is the superstition. This is the fake news of contemporary spirituality. Because people will say things like, well, but, you know, I'm a good person, you know. I've done some bad things, but I'm a good person. And they think, like, if you have more good than bad, then you'll be fine with God when you die. But that's not the way that the law works. The law presumes obedience. The police don't pull you over and say, we've been watching you. and You, you drive really good. We're going to give you a couple, couple get-out-of-jail-free cards, you know. Uh, you've been driving so good, we'll let you murder someone and get away with it even. You know, that's not how the law works. You can't stand before a court. You can't stand before a righteous judge and say, Your Honor, I, I killed her, but think of all the people that I haven't killed. Our good can't weigh, outweigh our bad. That's not the way that the law works. But here is the one who has come, who has obeyed the law, and he has done it as a man. That's the good news. That's the good news. Because he has done something in our place as a substitute for us. Uh, when I was a kid and we heard news that there was a substitute teacher, we always got excited because we can treat the substitute. And my dad's here, I'm incriminating myself, but I'm grown now, whatever, forgive me. The substitute shows up and you treat the substitute bad because that's not the real teacher, they're just standing in. We know what a substitute is. And likewise, there is one that has stood in the place of and takes the penalty, takes the wrath upon himself. We call this good news. Someone paid for you. Someone is offering you forgiveness. Someone has handled it for you. This is good news. News not merely to be heard, but news to respond to. And oh, tonight that you would hear this news, and this news would birth something in you as you think, oh, I'm so grateful of all this stuff that that guy up there is telling me that God has done for me. And hear not only a, a, a response of, of gratefulness that, that can come, but also a response of guilt, which is something that we often don't want to face. But here's the thing about this guilt. We can run to him and we can have it lifted. Our shame, our guilt, our punishment, it can all be lifted. Amen, God's people? And you can do that right now. You can do that right now. You can cry out to God right now. You, you don't have to put this off. You can do it right now. You can say, look, I've sinned. I've done wrong. I need your forgiveness. I heard you paid it for me. Can you put it in my account? And he's mighty to save. Look at what the text says. He's the source of this eternal salvation. This is what the Word says. And speaking of the Word, notice what else the Word says here about his life. It was filled with obedience. It was filled also with something else, suffering. In the Gospel accounts, we read of his pain, his agony, his hardship. And this brings me back to the original question that you probably forgot I was asking because that was just a long roundabout, wasn't it? But this away in the manger thing. So away in the manger, no crib for a bed. Little Lord Jesus, he lays down a sweet head. Uh, it reminds me of Talladega Nights, little baby Jesus. Uh, and the stars are bright. He looks down where he lays. Little Lord Jesus, he's asleep on the hay. The cattle are lowing. The baby awakes. But little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. No crying he makes is a curious line. Based on the story that I've been showing you from Scripture and the archaeology that we can dig up out of the past. I mean, maybe the author was just trying to describe that it was like a calm night. It was something tranquil. I mean, maybe they gave the baby some NyQuil or something. Don't do that. Uh, you know, and the baby's not crying or something. But the primary sources in the historical context actually show us that it was actually a noisy night. Now we sing the song, Silent Night. But the fact of the matter is the night, the night was also filled with noise. It's a, it's a house crammed in with all of your family. It's filled with noise. It's a, it's, a, it's a little town that's just crammed in. There's this crazy Roman government who oppresses your people, who's making you go to your hometowns, and it's like DMV lines, you know, you know uh, possessed by demons. Like, this census is hard, and everyone's crammed in, and your teenage wife just had a baby. There's going to be all kinds of sounds and smells. I, I, I hear the claim that he doesn't cry, and it reminds me of something that we refer to. I'm going to use a technical word, but I'll tell you what it means. It reminds me of docetism. 
Now, docetism, I'll put it in front of you, was an ancient heresy that claimed that Jesus wasn't fully human, but merely seemed to be or appeared to be. Uh, the Greek words dokeo, dokein, or dokesis, that's what they mean. They mean uh, to seem to appear. Now, I'm glad to be a part of church where we can use a big words like this, because there's a lot of churches that say, oh, you shouldn't do this. You've got to water it all down. People want the cookies on the bottom shelf or whatever. Just make it easy. Give it light and fluffy. Little TED Talk, Jesus sprinkles on top. You know, go home and do Christmas Eve. No, I'm gonna, I want to teach you something. Jesus isn't the docetic Jesus. That is to say, he doesn't just appear as a human. He actually is one. And here's the thing about babies. Uh, they, ha they cry. They, they cry. And all the parents said, amen. And all the parents who are empty nesters said, you know, yeah, thank God. Uh, you know, that's the great thing, I, I suppose, about being grandparents. You could come get them all riled up and then you can leave. And then, you know, you deal with the crying. Crying is an automatic biological reaction. The cry is a somatic reflex. A baby senses a need. It triggers a sudden inspiration of air into the lungs with a forceful expelling of that air into the vocal cords that vibrate into a sound that we call crying. Uh, one of my sons, Isaiah, we nicknamed him Cryzaiah because he just cried so much. It's like, what is wrong with you? You have the best life. Why are you crying? I oh, just want to sleep. Uh, it's biological programming to keep a helpless human alive. Of course Jesus cried. He's a human. He's a helpless babe. Colic, fatigue, acid reflux, all of those would have been things that he would have experienced. Now, earlier we read this detail in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, that the baby was wrapped in cloths. Remember that? And I paralleled that to his, his burial and some of the theological imagery there. But it's worth noting that Luke, who wrote that account, is a physician. He's a medical doctor. Further, it's noting that babies, their limbs would be wrapped with strips in the first century. And it was a practice of doing this on children who were particularly weak. If they're bow-legged, if their limbs were weak, they would wrap them in strips of cloth to give them support. Now, this suggests that Jesus, as a baby, again, going back to what I said, the lowly and the weak, the marginalized, the outcast, Jesus, as a baby, was a weak baby. Jesus, as a baby, would have been a crying baby. We know as well that swaddling is used, we still do this in our culture, to help do what? To shut them up. No, to soothe them who are crying. Uh, we got one of those battery-operated, you know, chairs that did this. You just swaddle them up like, you know, just like, like, like a burrito. Just roll them up, just really tight, put them in that thing. It soothes them. He's swaddled because he is crying. Now, many years later into his life, we obviously know that Jesus cried. In John chapter 11, verse 35, we read a phrase that is very famous for being the shortest verse inside of the Bible. Again, I'll put it in front of you in the Greek. I'll translate it in just a second, just so that you're reminded. This is the ancient world. Uh, nerd bible trivia here it's actually not the shortest verse inside of the bible and the greek there is a shorter one that's 12 letters you can see there's more than 12 letters up there it's greek to you but you can see it's more than 12 letters and it's found in luke 20 verse 30 if you want to look it up later and be a nerd about it but anyway and what does it mean it literally means jesus wept and in the case of John 11, Jesus wept at the news of his friend Lazarus dying. He also was probably weeping over the exhaustion of disbelief and sin that is swirling around him as he comes to his friend's aid. Every tear that Jesus cries is a pure tear. We know that humans, though, our tears, they're, they're mixed, they're muddy. We cry for sinful reasons. We cry when we don't get our way. We cry out of sin. One of the things that we teach our kids in our house is that crying is normal, crying is natural on this side of heaven. And further, it's, it's acceptable to cry. And we have three specific reasons we try to teach our kids. It's injury, you know, something falls on your foot, you break an elbow, I, I mean, you know, cry, you know, cry. Rub some dirt on it, stop crying. No, cry, you're injured, that's fine. Second, it's tragedy. Uh, you know, someone you love dies, cry, that's what... You do. We're, our bodies are programmed for this. This is how we process all the psychosomatic biological stuff that goes on in a process of grief. Let that out. Cry. Uh, thirdly, we cry, and this is ironic, but out of jubilee. And they rhyme. Injury, tragedy, jubilee. We cry out of jubilee. You can be so happy you start crying. You ever seen that? You're like, wait, are you mad at me? Are you, oh, wait, you're crying because you're happy. This is awesome. It's, it, that's what happens with humans. Uh, other reasons for crying are often out of sin. Sometimes we we cry, you know, like we didn't get our way or we're pouting or we're trying to manipulate someone. Other times we'll actually try not to cry and it's a sinful stoicism. It's our pride. We don't want to let others see this, you know. And even in our culture we'll say, real men don't cry. You know, you don't cry. Now I get it if you're being childish, you're being Peter Pan, you're being sinful or whatever. But I beg to differ. Real men cry because in John eleven thirty five, 35, for Pete's sake, 
Pete's sake, I read, Edak Krusen Ha Jesus, Jesus cried, he's a real man. He was the realest man this world had ever known, and he cried as a man, and he cried as a baby, because babies cry. So I want to critique that little hymn, and I think it's a big deal that he's a crying baby, because it shows that he entered into a broken world. He's got feeble limbs, he's got teenage parents, he's poor, he's in a little eight-mile motorhome, he's got nothing. In Hebrews chapter 8 and 9, I, I quoted for you about Jesus' obedience and his suffering. I left out this verse for a little punch here. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, right? What does he do? He has loud crying and loud tears, the text of Scripture tells us. The eternal Son of God was a real man, and in real life he has real tears and he has real pain, and he was brought into a real home with a real family and real dysfunctions. It's real, it's raw, and through it he secured an everlasting salvation for his people. That's another problem that I have with the Away in the Manger song. It kind of robs the nativity of its nor normality in life and the first century archaeology of what a cataluma was and, and then the no crying docetic baby or whatever. But the detached manger that's all away from the family. The song goes on talking about, you know, uh, sweet baby Jesus, Talladega Jesus. I love you, Lord Jesus. Look down from the sky and stay by my side until morning is nigh. Why does he sound so distant? Is it, he's just looking down. What is he doing? Jesus promised his disciples in Matthew 28, 20, Lo, I am with you always. He is always with his people. Be near me, Lord Jesus. I ask you to stay close by me forever, forever, and, and love me, I pray. I pray you'll love me. I pray you'll stay beside me. Is Jesus not going to stay beside you? Is, is there no assurance of salvation? Uh, bless all the dear children in your tender care and fit us for heaven to live with you there. Uh, is this a lullaby for children? Why are we focusing on the children? Uh, you know, rockabye baby on the treetop. When the balloon blows, the cradle will rock. And when the bow breaks, the cradle will fall. And down will come baby, uh, cradle and all. That's a creepy one. It ends with a baby falling out. You know, this one at least would be a much better lullaby. But it, it seems to be reducing the work of Christ to a mere ticket to heaven. What about resurrection? What about the new heavens and the earth? What about his suffering? What about his humanity? He lived in real towns in Bethlehem and Nazareth and Galilee. He walked in a broken earth. He breathed messy, dirty air. He suffered in the earth, in his body. And he did all of that so that one day he would reign over the creation as the true king who restores all things, ushers in a new heavens and a new earth and new bodies and flesh restored and no more pain and no more death because he absorbed it all in his earthly body that he wept that he sweat, that he bled out for in being the perfect sacrifice for us as a substitute. Now, speaking of the sacrifice, it is fitting for us this night to grab these cups that are on your chairs and to picture, to symbol the great sacrifice that was paid for us. There's a little foil top on it, and you pull it back, and you get this little picture of this bread, and you can think of the flesh, the human nature that the eternal Son took in Christmas. And you can think of how it was when Jesus took the bread, he broke it. He broke it. He said, this is for you. A crying, suffering, sweating, bleeding, broken picture in front of you. And take that bread and eat it. And try to imagine and try to see and try to connect, right? The cross to the cradle. The conception to the tomb. And connecting this with this ultimate story of the God who created the world out of nothing. Everything that had a beginning had a cause. The universe had a beginning, so the universe doesn't have a cause. And he creates the world out of nothing, and the world rebels against him. And he, he responds in love, and he steps into it. And he takes on a body, and he takes on blood, and he bleeds out for us. The cup is a reminder of the one who bled out for us. In John 11, he wept. In Hebrews 5, it tells us that he weeps. Jesus taught his disciples to weep with those who weep. We drink the cup. It's a sobering cup in celebration of the one who came in Christmas to die for us. In teaching his disciples to weep, he told his disciples to mourn with those who mourn. I take great comfort in this, especially at the end of a really tough year. In our church, in our families, we've said goodbye to loved ones who are now with the Lord. Our main worship leader just recently lost his dad. We had the funeral this week. And as I was sitting in the funeral and thinking about preaching to you tonight, I wanted to preach to you the reality of the one who took on flesh. And that reality, as we stood in the sanctuary with our worship leader's dad in a, in a, in a coffin and his flesh being there, 
We have the promise that comes in Christmas that that's not the end of the story because there is one who has defeated the grave for us and there is one who has sent us into the world to have compassion, to reach out to those on the margin, to reach out to those who are broken and to share with them a God who has come, who has wept with us in the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. I take comfort in this, especially at the end of a tough year of loss. So maybe I'm harping on, no, that baby cried because this is a year where we need to be reminded that it's okay to cry. And it's a year where we need to be reminded of the one who has cried and wept and lived and loved for us. The comfort of knowing the Savior wept in humanity is so comforting when you sit with it. And furthermore, the eschatological hope that we see inside of Scripture, that the Son is going to return, the Christ child will return, and He will, as Revelation 21 tells us, He will wipe away all their tears. It's in front of you. Look at it. I saw new heavens and new earth. This isn't an escape hatchet message like, hey, don't you want to go to heaven? Sounds like fun. So, you know, come to Jesus. You get to go to heaven. No, no, no. The sun is going to come and he's going to usher in a new heavens and new earth. And he's going to overturn. He's going to restore. He's going to restore all these things. And it says in verse 4, right in front of you, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, crying or pain. The first things have passed away. He who sits on the throne, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write these words, they're faithful and true. And then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs the water of life without cost. You see, what he did for us is free. It's free. You can't earn it. You can't save for it. You can't steal it. It's a free gift that is given. The one who is without beginning and end took on flesh, lived for us, wept for us, suffered for us, died for us. A frail little baby who would hang from a cross as a frail man, who then would conquer the grave, ascend to heaven, and he ascends to heaven in the flesh for us, and he intercedes for us in his flesh, and he indwells us supernaturally by the Holy Spirit, bringing us into union with the Father through the incarnation. He did all this for us. Here Hear, hear the sounds of a baby in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago and hear the crying of that baby echoing to Los Angeles and see a world that is filled with tears and loss and brokenness and weakness and you think your king would come and he would take all that on himself? Yeah, I think that because he's revealed that and he's done this for us. The preposition for we use around the holidays, right? We have two, you know, this is for you. I got this for you. It's a gift. He did it for you. Again, don't just hear the message. Receive the message tonight. This was done for you. Let me close by showing you a remix that I did because I like remixing things. Uh, used to make them beats and it's still in me. So I decided, hey, all right, I'm picking on the song. What you gonna do? A lot of times people critique things and they're always the people who are just telling you what's wrong but they never do anything about it. So here's the Matt Jones remix that I'll close on and we'll sing some, some, uh, some biblical carols and we'll light some fire and stuff. Away in Bethlehem, no guest room with a bed. The incarnate Son of God laid down his sweet head. The stars in the bright sky looked down on the home where the son named Jesus laid in a manger of stone. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, the swaddled Jesus some crying he makes. I can say he was crying all the time, you know, but he, he was some crying. It's a little modification there. And then these stanzas that I thought were a little kind of like individualistic and emotive and uh, insecure. I love you, Lord Jesus, the eternal son become man who died and was risen now at the father's right hand. Be near me, Lord Jesus, by the spirit you sent. You saved us forever taking our punishment. Bless all the dear churches in your tender care. Empower us for mission in the gospel we share. <laughs> Christmas is a message that we share, but it's not just a message, it's a man. And the man is God. And he came into a womb and asexually was miraculously produced so that he could rescue humans who are born sinners by being a perfect human from womb to the tomb and beyond. You can come to him. You can be transformed by him. I plead with you, come to him. It is one decision in this life you will never regret. 
You'll regret a lot of decisions. You'll look back on your life, I shouldn't have dated that person, I shouldn't have went to that school, I shouldn't have majored in that, I shouldn't have did that business deal, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have been so mean to that person. You'll never regret. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have had his love lavished over me and his forgiveness lavished. You'll never regret. Come to him. Come to the one who, who cries and has taken on flesh for you. Let's, let's, let's light the candle. Let's think about the life that he has given. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. What we're going to do is we're going to light this thing. Uh, Pastor Tony and, and Ryan are going to help you know, spread it around. We're going to go down the middle. We're just going to, we're going to pass it. And as it's being lit, we're going to sing, and the, the lyrics to the songs will be up there, and we'll, we'll just we'll sing to the Lord. And, and I want you to think, uh, think about what's in the Christmas cards, and it's, you know, the REI camp out, and, you know, date night and whatever. Uh, think of, no, a crowded home, and it's like smelly, and bed sucks, and, you know, there's weird cousins in town, and it's raw, and the baby's hurting, and you're swallowing the thing, and the baby's God in the flesh for you. He is the light of the world that has come to reveal himself. And Mary and Joseph just got a little bit of that light. They just knew a little bit, okay, this is prophecy, okay, he's like divine. And as the story goes, the light just got brighter and brighter and brighter. We know from the beginning in creation, God was going to send one through the woman who would, who would do this. And, and he promised to Abram and he promised to David. The light just kept lighting as the story of Revelation goes. And so we get to picture that as we do this, as we light off the Christ candle and we go, watch the light spread. The symbol reminds us of progressive revelation. And may the symbol not just be of history, and, but may it be a reality in your heart. So as it, as it lights for you, cry out to God, Lord, light that light within me. Have your way within me. Cleanse me. Let's light and let's sing to the Lord, shall we?